Now boarding on track number eight is train number one, the All Aboard podcast, your excursion into transportation excellence, and I am your conductor, Phil Bell, PB Chris, Mr. 645, a highly trained rail enthusiast, and I'm proud to hold the E. Hunter Harrison chair here at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies, where there are no degrees because the learning never ceases. And after a great weekend, I'm very excited to be back here behind this the Brunswick Green PLB microphone. Now we're going to get right to the main event, and that is electric vehicles and how railroads are America's biggest user of them. Now I know most of you have been thinking when you hear electric vehicles, you're thinking about your Tesla. You're thinking about Rivian. You've been hearing a whole lot about that, but here's the reality. Railroads have actually been the world's leader in electric vehicles for many years. And so let me get started. Now, for a long time, railroads were, of course, at first powered by horses. And horses were very effective because they had been used to power transportation for a long time, going back to the Roman era and even before. But of course, as America got to be more industrialized and more urban, certainly horses couldn't keep up. And when you think back to some of what you've heard about our large cities, such as New York City years ago, there was another problem that came with horses, and that was, of course... uh, fecal matter being all over the place. So you're thinking about more of the disease and the like that are coming along, although you have these horse-powered cars, which we called horse cars, and it certainly worked very well. This really wasn't going to cut it. But the next thing was, of course, your steam engine, and the steam engines were would continue to operate and be the primary mode of horsepower for railroads into the 1950s, but they also had their problems in urban areas, which think about your urban area. If you had a steam locomotive chugging down the tracks, but not just one and a lot of them, you would see how this could certainly become something where a lot of folks say, I don't know if this is necessarily the best thing for the environment. Now, look, to be clear, I think it's a great thing for the environment, but it was very difficult. And you would see a lot of cities in some ways push back on that. But The biggest problem that steam locomotives had, especially in urban centers and also in tunnels, was, was, excuse me, ventilation. And that's because a lot of these areas were very, very difficult to add ventilation to. And it wasn't just that it was going to make it more difficult for crews to be able to breathe as the trains are moving along, but also that it would be very difficult for them to see. So I want you to think about signals being obscured and that produces a safety issue. So railroads look for opportunities to find other forms of traction that would let them be able to operate trains safely and effectively, both for the crews and also for the schedules. One of the first ones to do this was the Baltimore and Ohio. And that Actually, let me let me back up for a second. Before we get to the Baltimore and Ohio, because that happened in 1895, I want to share with you somebody who would be very important in the rail industry and what he did, and his name was none other than Thomas Alva Edison. And we all love Thomas Edison because we remember what he did with the light bulb, but Thomas Edison was actually very involved in rail transportation. Now, in 1880, he started operating this train on... Uh, his estate. And it was a locomotive. It had three cars. One of the cars was named Pullman. And I'm sure that was a little bit of a uh, joke in a way, but 
he demonstrated that electric traction could be successful. So much so that the folks in his community said, hey, why don't you build something bigger? And by the way, this was in Menlo Park, New Jersey, of course. They said, hey, why don't you build something bigger that would be an even better demonstration? What I also want to highlight about what Edison did there is that he had electromagnetic braking. And so that, in addition to being one of the earliest forms of utilizing electric and thereby making the train into an electric vehicle, Thomas Edison also pioneered early forms of utilizing electricity for braking. One of the big issues at play in railroading today is ECP brakes, or so-called electro-pneumatic brakes, which a lot of regulators would like to see added to a variety of rail equipment, including uh, moving crude by rail, and this has been a point of contention for railroads for the last decade. And I'd also like to point out uh, after Edison did it, another early application of electrical braking also came about with Union Pacific Streamliners, the city of San Francisco, among them, where this was actually installed on the cars and on the locomotives. So Edison was very much a railroad innovator, very much ahead of his time, very much involved in electrifying every aspect of railroading. And oh, by the way, not only did he create that small train at Menlo Park, New Jersey, but he also developed the electric system that the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railway used on its suburban lines that emanated out of the Hoboken Terminal in Hoboken, New Jersey. Now, if you've been following us and you follow us on social media, you know we love Hoboken because, of course, I love the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, and that was its eastern passenger terminus. But those lines, which today are still operated by New Jersey Transit, and in many cases still use the same catenary poles that were put up for the Edison electrification, although the electric system itself has been changed, um, those lines were electrified with Edison's system, and they operated using that system into the 1980s, so for over 50 years, which shows you how not only was Edison good at, was uh, an innovator, but his system, dis, uh, direct current, 3,000 volt direct current, worked incredibly well. But after Edison in 1880, we move on to 1895 and the Baltimore and Ohio. Now, the Baltimore and Ohio had a little problem. And a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about Chase, Maryland, we talked about the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore. That was a railroad that the Pennsylvania took over and became part of the Northeast Corridor. Well, before the Pennsylvania Railroad took it over, it was used to forward the Baltimore and Ohio's trains from Baltimore, where the B&O had its eastern terminus, into the New York City area. And I want you to think back, even in the 1890s, New York City was so important that railroads wanted to do everything they could to get to that consumer market and also that passenger market. So that's how the B&O was doing it. But like any time, when your competitor comes and takes over a company that you're, making, that you're partnered with, suddenly those partnerships go away. And the Pennsylvania quickly found out that, yep, it's uh, excuse me, the Baltimore and Ohio quickly found out that, yeah, in fact, they were not going to be able to use the Pennsylvania Railroad to get its trains to the New York City area. So they didn't know what to do. And they built what is now the Philadelphia subdivision of CSX. And uh, it has some high bridges, especially around Perryville. Very interesting to watch. And that's how CSX moves trains through the I-95 corridor to get to the New York area. Well, they had a problem, though. The Philadelphia subdivision was on the wrong side of town. And also, they had to have a station because the station that was previously used with the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore was now no longer uh, something they could utilize. So they built the Mount Royal Station. And I will show you a picture of that because, as you know, when it comes to railroads, 
the most uh, important thing that you can do is have a little bit of visual. Mount Royal Station. Um, And this is something, by the way, if you're a rail enthusiast, I hope that you will take the opportunity to go visit. It's owned and operated now by a, I believe it's the Maryland Institute College of Art. So it's an art college in Baltimore, but it's also right next to the B&O main line where you can see uh, important trains such as CSX's IO31, which is a New York, uh, excuse me, Jersey City to Jacksonville intermodal train. That's Mount Royal Station there. It's at the western end, excuse me, the eastern end of the Howard Street Tunnel. Um, And also it's where Governor Hogan, when he was leading Maryland, held the press conference to commemorate the state's agreement with CSX to expand the tunnel to accommodate double stacks. So this has been, this is a very uh, historic area as far as rail enthusiasts and rail historians are concerned. But they built the station where they would now be able to bring their New York bound passenger traffic, uh, have them board and offload. Although they also did have Camden station at that time, which is right next to Camden yards, the famous Oriole park at Camden yards and the Camden yards, which at the time were railroad yards before the baseball stadium, of course, got there. Uh, but, the B&O had a problem. The Howard Street Tunnel goes under the city of Baltimore, then as now. And then as now, it was very difficult to ventilate the tunnel. So what did they do? They said, I know, let's go ahead and have an electric system. And they contracted with General Electric, which uh, also an outgrowth of Thomas Edison's work, to create this. And this is an example of the electric system that was there, which had a third rail that ran overhead and was offset. So I know for those of you who are familiar with railroad electrification, you're thinking, wait a minute, an offset third rail that ran above. Yes, yes, that's exactly what was done. So it was actually in the center, and that also makes it accessible for trains that are operating on either track because at the time the tunnel was in fact double-tracked. And so this is the system. It had 675 volts of direct current, which uh, ran through it, and that provided the traction power for the trains. General Electric supplied not only the installation itself, but they supplied the powerhouses and they supplied the locomotives. So this gives you an idea of the way that some of the early electrications were done. By contrast, Westinghouse was heavily involved with alternating current with the installation that was done on the New York, New Haven, and Hartford, which again, we still continue to use to this day. At the time, that electrification, when it came about, was 11,000 volts alternating current and 25 cycle power, whereas again, General Electric supplied 675 volt direct current power to power the B&O's electrification in Baltimore. And before we move on from the B&O, I want to give you a little example of what those early locomotives looked like. And here's one, and I believe this is the uh, LE1 in a designation of the locomotive. Uh, another interesting tidbit about this, trains that were moving westbound were able to drift through the tunnel. So they ran one way with steam power. The steam engines just simply didn't open the throttle and put a lot of exhaust out. But those that were going eastbound were actually handled by the electrics themselves. So that added another wrinkle to it, uh, which shows how, I don't want to say primitive, although it is somewhat primitive, 
this electrification was, but it also shows how railroads operate, which is that because the cost of capital is always a difficult thing, and this was the case even with the Baltimore and Ohio, even in that time when railroads were still a very new, strong, and growing business, you had to take these opportunities to potentially pair the amount of capital that you were raising. And so, yes, having trains that are westbound, and we might think of that as southbound because they're actually moving geographically south, but the Baltimore and Ohio was an east-west railroad, and so their timetables reflected movement only east and west. So westbound, or as we might say, southbound trains coasted through the tunnel, whereas the eastbound or northbound trains headed for New York would be pulled by the electrics through it. Now, this electrification lasted through the early 1950s. That's because when the diesel locomotive was, excuse me, the diesel electric locomotive was introduced, and remember that because that'll be important later, uh, the amount of smoke that they put out, even in a negative, very difficult time when the lo- when the engines are not operating properly, uh, does not in any way compare to what a steam engine under heavy load would be putting out. And therefore, a lot of the ventilation issues went away, and therefore the electrification was not as necessary. Another example of an electrification like this comes from the Cascade Tunnel on the Great Northern out in Washington state. And there they did the same thing where they had a relatively short amount of uh, travel. And so what they did is electrified it because of the question of ventilation. And then just like with the Baltimore and Ohio, as we were able to utilize diesel locomotives, diesel electric locomotives, and that reduced the amount of soot and smoke that was coming out, that meant those electrifications were no longer necessary. So that shows you a little idea of what you would have at the heavy rail side and some of the early ones that came about. Another example of early electrification comes to us from one of my favorite railroads, and that is the Erie. And this is one that is always, almost always forgotten about because it was very, very early Uh, or at least I should say it was at a time when there wasn't quite as much railroad photography. But this was 34 miles of its Rochester division running from Rochester, where, of course, we know Kodak uh, became very strong, to Mount Morris, New York. And this was, interestingly enough, 11,000 volts alternating current at 25 cycles. So uh, whenever we talk about cycles or hertz, that's the frequency at which the current in the case of alternating current is being transmitted. And so different cycles have different electrical equipment is operated to uh, is designed to operate at different cycles. So what you have mostly in your home, your light bulbs and so on operates at 60 cycles. That's commercial power. But at the time, 25 Hertz is what Westinghouse used for a lot of these early rail electrifications. And even today that's used on Amtrak's Northeast corridor, uh, south, or we should say, well, actually it is south in that area of New Rochelle, and then also west of Philadelphia, 11,000 volts alternating current at 25 cycles. The portion of the former New Haven that we were speaking about before has been converted to 60 cycle current at 12,500 volts. And then the northern part of the Northeast Corridor, which gets you into Boston, is 25,000 volts at 60 hertz. And that was newly installed in the early to actually late 90s and early 2000s. But what's interesting about this electrification that the Erie did in 
Rochester, first of all, is that the Eerie even did it, because as we know, the Eerie, the Scarlet Woman of Wall Street, was almost always capital starved. So taking on a project like this was a very big effort for them. But the second thing is that this is an example of a commuter electrification. And that is one of the areas where a lot of rail advocates and urban planners tend to like to promote the idea of electrification that is for commuter rail. Why is that? Well, because there's a lot of it in the New York City area, on the former New York Central, on the former, uh, somewhat on the former New Haven, and then, of course, on the Pennsylvania Railroad. You also have it now in the, um, excuse me, the effort to make it into the Boston area as well, because we've seen that what electric traction allows one to do, which is accelerate faster, uh, is very beneficial in these situations where you have a lot of stops close together. Philadelphia, also another one where the Pennsylvania Railroad on one side and the Reading on the other also utilized 11,000 volts at 25 hertz in order to provide that. And that system is now operated by both Amtrak and SEPTA. So this is what the Erie did. Now, this electrification, unfortunately, did not last very long. And as we know from our history of the Erie, it uh, didn't stick around. I believe it was 1934 when it was finally phased out. And sadly, most of that has been forgotten. But the place where we typically think of railroads as being users of EVs, electric vehicles, which is electrically powered trains, are streetcars and interurbans. And uh, a lot of this was for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier, which is that your uh, streetcars and interurbans operate in your urban areas. And therefore, when you're operating in an urban area, uh, you have a lot of folks, whether we're talking about the quote unquote city fathers or otherwise saying, hey, we don't know if we want steam powered locomotives in the area. So therefore, you would end up with electric traction. And one unique uh, aspect of this comes to us from none other than Washington, D.C. Now, that is uh, an overhead view in the PCC era. So that would have been the 1940s into the 1960s before D.C. transit shut down. And you notice those streetcars are operating, obviously, in the middle of the street. But what looks odd about that is it kind of looks like Lionel track. And you're saying, wait a minute, Phil, I, we're not talking about model trains today, but this is an example of how electric power was provided to some cars in certain areas. And this is an example of conduit track. So the conduit was actually a third rail that went in the center. And this was mandated by the U.S. Senate because the U.S. Senate at the time controlled the franchise that uh, D.C. Transit used to provide transit service in the District of Columbia because there was a lot of fear that either overhead wire, which was unwanted, or some form of a tra more traditional third rail would be dangerous to people. So in D.C., what they did is they had this odd third rail system called a conduit system that was basically more or less, quote unquote, safe for you to walk over if you were a pedestrian and that you wouldn't get all 600 volts in you if you happened to contact it. Now, once the cars got out of the downtown core, they were able to switch to their trolley poles, which you see on the top of the streetcars there and operated as normal. So that was something that was unique to the D.C. area. But I wanted to mention it because it underscores the challenges that railroads and streetcar operators in urbans would face when they wanted to operate in these areas. And also the political ramifications of dealing with governments who more or less uh, 
controlled your ability to operate in the street. Now, the final part of railroad electrification I want to talk about, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but here you go. And let's make sure we get our big tech to cooperate. And that is the diesel electric locomotive. And you're saying, but wait a minute, Phil, hold on, hold on. Is this some kind of a ruse? Are you trying to put one over on me? No, I'm not. You see, when you see a train go down the track and you're thinking, but wait a minute, that's a diesel locomotive, Phil, that has a diesel engine in it. And it's generating all of this quote unquote pollution. That's not an electric locomotive. No, it it is an electric locomotive. It actually is an electric locomotive. You see, going back to this picture, which is an export locomotive, an EMD GT22, uh, you're seeing the installation of an electric generator right next to the diesel engine itself. And the reason we call these diesel electric is because rather than having a direct drive transmission or hydraulic transmission like in most of your cars, diesel electric locomotives utilize an electric transmission. It's actually traction motors, electric motors that are mounted on the axles, which provide the power for the train to move. And so I'll give you an example of what one of those looks like. This is an EMD D77 type traction motor that's utilized in some of the more popular locomotives out there, such as the SD40-2 and the GP40-2, and has also been used in a lot of rebuilds. You even see some older locomotives like E8s with the D77 because they're very sturdy and, um, and can take a lot of abuse in a variety of different services. Obviously, whether it's heavy, heavy, heavy haul freight, such as coal service, where a lot of the SD40-2s were assigned to early on, or the start and stop that comes with passenger, excuse me, commuter applications, such as F40PHs in the Boston area and Chicago, uh, where you'll see a lot of stress on the traction motors that way. And, excuse me, this is what electric, what an electric vehicle really is. It is utilizing electric power for its traction. And in the case of the diesel electric locomotive, That's where it happens. So the diesel engine or the diesel engines, because some locomotives have more than one, they turn that generator and the generator provides electric power to what's called an electrical electrical cabinet. The electrical cabinet is usually mounted right behind the cab because that provides accessibility to the crew in case there's any problems or power has to be rerouted in some other way. Now, when it goes to the electrical cabinet, it is dispersed throughout the locomotive for a variety of applications. So when you think about the cooling fans that are on top of the locomotive, they are electrically powered. So they're getting their power electricity from that electric generator. The same goes for the uh, hot plate that crews and uh, crews have required Canadian railroads to have in their locomotives. Same goes for the lights in the bathroom area and so forth and on the front of the locomotive. But the majority of that power is rooted to the traction motors, as you've seen here in this photo, at where it provides, it actually turns the motor itself and the motor is mounted through gears on the axle and that's what turns the wheels and makes the locomotive run. Now, one of the thing one of the ways I like to dramatize how important and how critical this aspect of diesel electric is actually comes to us and I'm going to put the traction motor back up here while I get that article for you, but it comes to us from uh years ago 
when a Canadian city, Canadian uh, town locomotive tower, uh, there was a Canadian town in Quebec that after a storm worked with Canadian National, and there it is, to get a diesel electric locomotive that they actually ran down the street. Not on tracks, but they ran it down the street so they could hook it up to the town's electrical system and provide power for several days until they were able to get regular electricity restored. And that gives you an idea of how much electric power locomotives generate if they're able to provide power for parts of an entire community. That is something and very noteworthy in EVs. Now, I'll get a little editorial here. Uh, I believe this is the best way that you have electric vehicles. And I know some of you who are more purists are saying, Phil, look, this is just doesn't make sense. But keep in mind, the locomotives are able to take their power source with them, but they're able to take advantage of the best aspects of electric traction, which is simplicity. Number one, because think about think back to the last time you had to have a transmission repaired and how much money you spent and how complicated a piece of equipment that is just for an automobile. Now transform that to something that's this large and has to, for example, convert 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, depending on the locomotive amount of horsepower into uh, transfer that to the wheels. That is a very expensive and difficult piece of machinery. And that's a good example why you've seen some of the aspects such as the diesel hydraulics that were tried in the 1960s and 1970s did not have success because not only do you have something that's difficult for uh, a lot of mechanics to learn because it's a very complex piece of equipment, but also it's going to be expensive to repair. On the contrast, all you do when a locomotive traction motor burns out, an electric motor, you're able to remove it, and it's done as a combination. And that's why you frequently refer to these as combos. And I'll put a picture of the combo back up for you um, with the traction motor. If you give me one second, you bear with me. Uh, you know, one of the the only tough part about this podcast, I'll tell you is making sure that we're able to get all of our exhibits and the like for those of you who are watching on YouTube and Rumble. So what I hope you're doing is clicking the like button to thank me for all of what it takes to get these exhibits up for you. But we call this a combo. So you see the traction motor, that's the electric motor in the center, and you see wheels on the side of it. Taken together, that's a combination of a traction motor and wheels. We call those combos. So typically, those are all replaced together. So if a traction motor burns out, a railroad will take out the combo, the wheel and the traction motor, and put a fresh one in. That improves, that just makes it simply easier and faster to do the work. And then, of course, plug everything back in, put the truck. The truck, by the way, is the frame that holds the wheels and the traction motors, the combos. And that's under the locomotive that swivels from the right to the left. Uh, most people in Europe call those bogies. We call them trucks. Actually, I'll give you an example since we have a model train right here. This is considered to be the truck. Uh, this entire assembly under it. That's put back together, put under the locomotive, and then it's able to operate again. So that gives you an idea of how diesel electric locomotives are actually electric vehicles and 
because they operate everywhere, all across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this is how railroads are the biggest and most prolific and longest term user of electric vehicles in the nation. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I know there's going to be a lot of debate about this because a lot of folks typically don't think of something with a diesel engine as being an electric vehicle, but I hope I've shown you that with the diesel electric, that certainly is the case. And also, I hope you understand why electric traction actually makes a lot of sense for the work that we do on the railroad. What concerns me as we go forward is that you have regulators out there who want to continually stiffen the um, requirements that are related to emissions as far as diesel electric locomotives are concerned because they have the hope that you will eventually see all electric locomotives where they don't take their power source on board with them. I believe this is a bad idea, and this is not so much me making a political statement, but what I want you to think about is every effort to expand electrification since the 1970s, and there have been many. The Southern Railway was one that that considered it. The Milwaukee Road, which also had not one but two extensive electrifications in Montana and Idaho, wanted to rebuild its electrification after they pulled the wires down. The reason why it has not been successful is because, number one, it is very expensive. Number two, it puts railroads even more at the mercy of fluctuations in commodity prices than they already are. Number three, it is very difficult to develop effective electrical gear and be able to compensate for the amount of space that's needed to move freight cars because think back to your double stack uh double stack train where you have two shipping containers stacked on top of each other for more than 100 cars you need to make sure that the overhead wires are able to accommodate this and this is one of the reasons why you have restrictions on freight service on Amtrak's Northeast Corridor, where the wires can certainly interfere in that. The next thing is the ability of the railroads to maintain under it, because remember, while we tend to take for granted on these electrified rights of way that it's there, it's normal, it's nothing new, there is an inherent danger in doing work under a high-voltage electrified catenary that is right over your head. From time to time, if you look on YouTube, you'll see examples of arcing where Uh, electricity will actually come down from that. And occasionally people have been hurt. Although I don't want you to think of this as being, you know, so dangerous that you shouldn't be around it, but it's something to remember because it would be much, much more widespread and therefore much, much more difficult to control. So there are reasons why the best form of electric vehicles has remained the one where the electricity is generated aboard the locomotive and then supplied to the electric motors to enable it to move and do its work. Now, What I hope you'll do is, first of all, like I said, subscribe and hit the like button. That lets the folks at Rumble and YouTube know that you like this content and know that you want to hear more of it. Number two, I want to thank all of you, whether it is someone like Adam B., who gave me some great advice on how to improve this podcast, James E., who always responds to me, lets me know what he thinks, Uh, the folks out there who have been sharing, the folks out there that we've been debating with. 
I love this. It shows that you're interested. And what I want you to do, if you have any ideas on what we should talk about or things we should not talk about, let me know because this podcast is for you. And after you do that, I want you to share this with your friends. Let them know you've been listening. Let them know why. Let them know what you like and let them know what you hate because we're going to keep doing this and we want to make it better so it will always retain its title of the best railroad podcast we will see you on wednesday where we're going to talk about via rail which is am which is canada's version of amtrak and the ups and downs that carrier has faced that's going to be a long one so get in don't buckle up because we don't have seat belts on trains and we don't want them uh because that's going to be a wild ride share your thoughts in the comments and as always when you get up every day start your day by going to allthingstrains.com so you can see the latest news and listen to the best podcast don't start your day going over to instagram and looking at e thoughts we'll see you later down the main line and i hope you have a great day